Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here at Claris. Uh, my name is Greg Gilbert. I am, as, as Ryan said, the senior pastor of Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. So I bring you greetings from that congregation. And I'm just thrilled to be able to be here and open up God's word with you. It's great to be here with, uh, uh, with your preaching pastor, Ryan, and another of your pastors, Trent. I've known these guys for years, and we have emailed and seen each other at conferences and talked business about various things. But uh, uh, I'm not sure we've been together in a setting quite like this one, so I'm very glad to be here with you. I'm especially glad to be able to be here on, on this particular occasion celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this year, actually 2017, is uh, a big one for me and for my family. So in January, my wife and I celebrated the great round number of 15 years of marriage. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. In March, on the 20th, which is 24 days from now, but who's counting, I will turn the great round number of 40 years old. And we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So I'll let you decide which of those is most important. And which of those brings the most joy to my heart. It's an awesome thing, though, to be able to celebrate anniversaries like that, isn't it? I mean, whether you're talking about a birthday or a wedding anniversary or even something like the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, because what happens is on those particular occasions, especially when it's a sort of round number like 15 or 40 or, my goodness, 500, you get to look back at what made those dates and those years so important. And the wonderful thing about the Protestant Reformation is that the thing that makes it so important, as Ryan said just a few minutes ago, is that there was a recovery of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we get to gather here in this place on this weekend and really in various places throughout the world throughout this year 2017 and celebrate that and remember it and thank God for the events that happened during that, years, uh, during that year and the years that followed. It's, it's particularly appropriate that in this conference we should open up to the book of Romans, uh, Paul's great letter to Christians in Rome, and I'm thrilled to be able to just step through portions of this book with you along with uh, uh, Mark as we go through the weekend. Um, we're gonna open up this evening by, by talking about uh, two particular verses in Romans chapter one. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter one. Uh, I would give you a page number if you're using a pew Bible, but I don't know what it is because I'm using the men's devotional Bible. So I won't be reading those to you, but they are, they are there. Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is where we're going to be today, but we're going to also give a kind of running start uh, to the first chapter of Romans. Romans has always been recognized as one of the most important books in the entire New Testament because it lays out so clearly and so completely the good news of how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. It was written by the Apostle Paul as a kind of introduction to himself, to the church in Rome, to Christians in Rome. Paul was headed that way to see those Christians. And before he arrived there in Rome, he didn't plant that church. It was, it was there before he ever got there. He had never met them before. And before he arrived in Rome and met them, he wanted to make sure that they knew that he believed and proclaimed the same gospel that they did. 
Not only that, but Paul also, as an apostle, wanted to address some problems that apparently were cropping up in the Roman church. And the way that he was going to address those problems was not just to give them some moral instruction, not just exhort them to do a certain thing or to stop doing a certain thing. But what he wanted to do was bring to bear the truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus. So that's what he does. And for the first part of the book, he's just laying out really step by step the message of the gospel, which he's then going to bring with all its weight and with all its power to bear on several different issues as the, the book comes to a close. We're going to be looking this evening at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But first, we've got to ask the question, why, why are we going to focus in on those two verses? What's, what's so important about them as opposed to any other two verses in the first chapter of Romans? The answer is, well, it's because these two verses are particularly important in the argument as it's unfolding. In fact, they really kind of form the topic sentence of the whole book. I don't know if you remember back in elementary school when you were learning how to write, your teacher would say something like, you know, what you need to do at somewhere near the beginning of your essay is write a, a topic sentence, something that sort of encapsulates everything that you're going to say after that. It sort of gives a preview of, of everything you're going to say. Well, that's what Paul does here. He's a good writer. And so in verses 16 and 17, he gives a, a topic sentence that tells us in a nutshell, really, where he's going to go with the entire book, what he's going to be talking about for the rest of this letter. So we're going to read it. Now, to give you a, a kind of running start, what's going on in verses 16 and 17 is that Paul is giving a reason for what he says in verse 15. So if you look at the very first word of verse 16, you see the word for there. For means that you're supposed to, it means because, and it means you're supposed to look backwards into the prior paragraph or the prior verse and then read it, you know, verse, 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 because this, and that's what you're about to read. So what Paul is doing in 16 and 17 is giving a reason for why he wants to go preach in Rome. You see that up in 15? I am eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome because, there in verse 16, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul says an absolutely massive amount of stuff here in the space of about 40 Greek words. So you've got this, what you've got is really a tightly packed little gospel bomb in which Paul is essentially explaining why he wants to preach. And if you know anything about Paul and his missionary trips and the, the endeavors that he, he made as a Christian, he was driven to preach. He wasn't just driven to preach in Rome. That was one place he wanted to preach. But he wants these Romans to know why he is so driven to preach. And so you ask, okay, well, well why? Why is Paul so driven to preach? Why is he so eager? And that's what he's telling us here in verses 16 and 17. I want you to look at it closely just so you can see really clearly exactly what he's saying. Through verses 16 and 17, you've got essentially three thoughts that Paul lays out in kind of quick succession. So what I want you to do is look through verses 16 and 17. So put your eyes down on the text, look through, and find all the times in those two verses that the word for is used. So literally kind of, kind of count them. How many times? It's three times, right? Three times. 
And each one of those three times that the word for shows up, you have a new idea that's building on on the last one. So the first line of it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then the next one says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because or for that good news about Jesus is the power of God for salvation. And then he finally says, I say the power of, I say the gospel is the power of God for salvation because, or again, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So you see how it's building on each other with those, with those words for? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And I say it's the power of God for salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's, it's three steps going up each time, explaining a little bit more. You can see how tightly packed it is, right? I mean, there's just a lot of material and a lot of truth and power that Paul is talking about in those 40 words. Every word and phrase of these two verses has meaning and it's drawing on ideas from the Old Testament. It's building one phrase on top of the other. And the whole message of the book of Romans is really getting encapsulated in these two verses. But the essential idea of it, what Paul wants you to get as you read those two verses is, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel in Ephesus. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel in Philippi. And I'm also not ashamed to preach the gospel to you who are in the eternal capital city of Rome. Why? Because I know that this gospel has massive, unstoppable power. That's why I'm not ashamed of it. And that's why I'm eager to preach it. That I think is the main idea of the text. In my own church, when I'm, when I'm preaching from a book, like Romans or any other. At the beginning of a sermon, I like to give a kind of main idea, which is one or two sentences, hopefully short, that kind of encapsulate the idea of everything that I'm gonna be saying through, through the sermon. And, and what I hope, if I'm doing this expositional preaching thing correctly, is that this main idea is not just the main idea of the sermon, but it's the main idea of what Paul is trying to say in the text that we're studying. So I'm gonna give you this main idea. It's one sentence. If, uh, if you are a note taker, I know probably in your bag, you got a nice little journal that you can take notes in. If you're using that or some other book to take notes in, if you're a note taker, this will be the most important sentence that you can write down from this talk this evening because you can go back later and sort of remind yourself what we talked about from Romans chapter one. If you're not a note taker, you should write this down anyway because it's, <laughs> it's just not that long, okay? There will be, nobody's gonna get writer's cramp from writing down this one sentence and you'll be able to go back and remember what we talked about. So, so here it is. Here's the main idea, I think, of Romans 1, 16 and 17. We can have unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus. We can have unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus because that gospel is powered by the God of the universe. We can have unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus because it is powered by the God of the universe. Now, when I say that you and I as Christians can have unshakable confidence in the gospel because it's powered by the God of the universe, I mean that in every conceivable way. I mean it from top to bottom. So, so from the beginning, I mean it in your own life. You as a Christian can rest in the gospel. You can find peace in the gospel. You can cling to and embrace the gospel of Jesus because it will never prove insufficient. It will never turn out to be empty. It will never turn out to be untrue. It will never turn out to be not quite as good as promised. And the reason that it will never turn out to be empty or not as good as promised is because it is powered and backed up, not just by some human word, not just by some human institution, but by the God who created the universe and holds the whole thing together. It's his word 
that makes the gospel powerful. So I'm talking about confidence in the gospel in your own life. But I'm also telling you, when I say that you can have unshakable confidence in the gospel, I'm also telling you that you can have that unshakable confidence in the gospel as you talk to other people and tell it to them. And there is just massive freedom in knowing that this message is different from every other message. And the reason it's different from every other message is because God himself has determined that this is what he's going to use to give spiritual life to people. This is the means by which he calls dead people to life spiritually. This is the means by which he calls people who are in darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, into light, into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is how he does it. So I know that speaking the gospel to people, whether it's a neighbor, or a coworker, or a friend, or a fellow student or somebody sitting next to you on a plane. I, I know that that kind of thing can just be filled up with all kinds of fear. Like, I hope I say it right and I hope I don't say something wrong. And what if they ask a question that I'm not gonna be able to answer? There are all kinds of fears that attend something like that. But what I want you to know today is that you don't have to have that kind of fear. Because the word of the gospel, the message of the gospel is not powered by you. It's powered by God. So speak it and let him work. So here's what I want to do with our time this evening. I want to give you three reasons from this text. Three reasons why we can be unashamed of the gospel. Three reasons why, like Paul, we can be unshakably confident in it. So here are the three points that I want to draw out of this text. I think they come right from those, those three phrases that the, the begin with four, 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 four. So three of those. Number one, number one, we can be unshakably confident in the gospel simply because it has massive power because it has massive power. Number two, we can be confident in the gospel because it offers an awesome gift. It offers an awesome gift. And number three, we can be unashamed of the gospel because its invitation is wide open. Because its invitation is wide open. So have confidence in the gospel because it has massive power, because it offers an awesome gift, and because its invitation is wide open. My prayer for you this evening as we talk about these three verses is that wherever you are in your Christian life, that your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be rooted more deeply after tonight than it was when you came in the door this evening. And I don't want that confidence in the gospel to be because you found some you know, newfound confidence in yourself or your ability to articulate it. I, I don't, that's not what we're going for here tonight. What I want is for your confidence in the gospel to be rooted more deeply because your vision of God got bigger. And because your vision of God's passion to save people through the gospel got bigger. And you realize that he is stopping at nothing to save people. And he's going to do it by the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So point number one, have confidence in the gospel because it has massive power. That's the very first thing that Paul says there. You see it? Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Now, so far in the book of Romans, if you start all the way at the beginning where Paul introduces himself and then explains who he is as an apostle of Jesus Christ and talks about who Jesus is as a son of David and then as the son of God and then talks a little bit about his longing to, to go to Rome and preach the gospel. One thing you, you recognize is by the time he gets to verse 16, he hasn't explained yet exactly what this gospel is. I mean, he sketches it out a little bit in the introduction, but, but he knows that he can just mention this word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He knows that, 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 that he can just sort of say that for one thing, because he knows the Romans know exactly what he's talking about. 
And they're kindred spirits in the gospel. I, I haven't taken any time at all tonight. And, and Ryan took a little bit of time to, to explain it. But I haven't gone into any depth yet explaining what the gospel is. But, but those of you who are Christians know exactly what I'm talking about when I say it. We're kindred in the, in the gospel. And Paul knows that he's, that he's able to, to trade on that a little bit at the beginning of the book. But the second reason that he doesn't feel like he needs to explain it just right off the bat is because he's going to spend the whole rest of the book telling it to them again. And that's what he launches into, and in really in chapters 1 through 8, he just starts to go through the, the truths of the gospel, just one right after the other until he's laid the whole thing out. And he knows he's about to do that. But I also know that, that some of you would probably be helped if we just take a couple of minutes here and stop and explain what we're talking about when we, when we talk about the gospel. I mean, there's, there's no point in preaching an entire sermon on being unashamed of the gospel if we don't know exactly what we're talking about in the first place. So let me take just a second and explain to you just in a couple of sentences, what the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, because that's what the word gospel means, right? It's from the old English, good spell, good word, good news, gospel. That's what it means. Euangelion in the Greek, right? Good word, good herald, right? So what is that good news of Christianity? Well, what he's talking about is that even though you and I and all human beings are rebels and sinners against God, and even though we deserve to fall under God's eternal and righteous and just wrath for that sin and that rebellion against him, God, because he loves sinners like us, sent his son Jesus to live the life that we should have lived right from the beginning. Not one that's full of sin and rebellion and unrighteousness, but one that's full of absolute obedience to his father. Absolute grace, absolute mercy, absolute righteousness. That kind of life. Then to die the death that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. And then to rise again from the grave so that if we are united to him by faith, we'll rise right along with him to new spiritual life. See, that's what Paul is going to unfold through the rest of the book. That's the news that he's, that he's talking about. And he says that that message, that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. Now, now don't run over that too quickly. Look at verse 16 and look at it very carefully. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Now notice what he doesn't say there in verse 16. He does not say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is a powerful message. It's not what he says. He actually says this incredible thing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, which would have blown every first century Jewish mind that read it. Now, why? Well, in order to understand what he's saying and why it's such an explosive statement, you, you got to think for just a few minutes like a first century Jew, right? If you're a first century Jew, you are, you are in a land that is under oppression. You're a part of a nation that's under the thumb of the conquering Roman Empire. You're also aware at some level that the reason you're under oppression is because of your sin and rebellion against God. And you understand that you are desperately in need of rescue and salvation. Now, if you're a first century Jew who understands all of that and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you also have an expectation that was given to you by the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets. You have this expectation that one day God himself is going to arrive in this breathtaking display of righteousness in order to save his people. 
That's what all the language in the prophets is all about. The, the mountains are going to melt. The stars are going to fall. And the God of the universe is finally, on one particular day, going to invade the world, reinvade the world with justice and righteousness. And what he's going to do when he arrives is put an end to the enemies of his people and rescue his people from oppression and from their rebellion and sin. It was, it was the great hope that the first century Jews had. This is what they were waiting on. They, they read Jeremiah and they read Isaiah and they read Ezekiel and that's what they were waiting on. It was the, the climax of history, the, the triumph of God, the, the apocalypse. It's what they wanted because it was gonna set everything right. Now, now the Jews talked about that particular day, that, that coming salvation from God in several different ways. But one of the main ways that they talked about it was the revealing of the power of God. When that day came, they said, the power of God would be revealed. And when the power of God was revealed, his people would be saved. So you can see now that what Paul says in verse 16 is clicking on the great Old Testament hope that the Jews always had. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. In other words, that day you've been waiting on, that apocalyptic day of the Lord, when the Lord comes to save his people and put an end to his people's enemies, that day is here. And it's here in the form of this message. This is the power of God for salvation. You've been waiting on it and it's here. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? What Paul is saying there, it's, it's not just a little phrase that means powerful message. It means something far more than just, this is a powerful message in the same way that you know, Disney can make a powerful movie, right? That's not what he means there. He doesn't just mean that it's an inspiring message. He means that this message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I mean, think about the difference between that and saying that the gospel is just a powerful message. It's just light years apart. There are lots of powerful messages in the world. Now, you've probably read, read books that you would come away from and you'd say, that, that's, a, that's a powerful book. It's a powerful message. You've, you've probably heard... You've probably heard people give speeches and you would say, that's a powerful message that you just gave there. You've probably read, read articles or you've seen TV shows and you would come away from it and if you were writing a review of it, you might say it was, it was powerful. It's inspiring, but that is not what Paul is saying about the gospel. He's saying something far more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that this message of the gospel is backed and powered and electrified by God himself. And there is no other message in the world that is like that. What it means is that when this message goes out, it goes out with the power to raise the dead. It goes out with the power to change the heart. It goes out as the one message that God himself, the one who created the world, has said, this is the means by which I'm going to give dead people life. This is it. There's no other means. There's no other way it's going to happen. There's no other tool that you can pick up and, and give a spiritually dead person life. God has said, this is the tool. This is it. The one tool that I'll use to bring spiritual life is the message of the gospel. You can see this in the way Paul talks about it. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read you a few verses from 1 Corinthians 1. And you can just hear how Paul talks about it. It's not just a powerful message. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A little bit later, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And listen to how he describes it, just, just one verse later. Consider your calling, brothers, he said. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see what he's saying there? He's saying this message that is the power of God, the the word of the cross, the word about Christ, this message saved you. It brought you to life. It didn't just make it possible for you to be saved. For those who are called by God, it it affects salvation. It, It happens when the word of the cross is preached. And Jesus taught this too in his own teaching. For example, when he said, And John, that his sheep know his voice. His voice has power and the sheep come. When he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, it's Jesus' word that has power. He didn't didn't go into the tomb and perform some CPR on on Lazarus' dead body. He didn't unwrap the the, the clothes from him and do something to him to to give him life. He just just stood at at the front of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And incredibly, John 11 says, the dead man came out. I've heard someone say that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, everybody in the cemetery would have walked out of the tomb. (laughs) And in John chapter 5, Jesus says that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You see what's going on there? The the power of the gospel is not just in the ability to make salvation possible. Because the gospel is backed and electrified by the power of the God of the universe, it has power to effect salvation. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Now, if if you're a Christian here this evening, I want you to take just a minute and just, just stand back for just a second and be shocked at all of this. And just take a couple of minutes, just take a few seconds here and just stand back in a little bit of, a, of amazement at what it means that you are a believer in Jesus Christ at all. I mean, if you're a believer in here tonight, it's, it, that is not just because you made a decision at some point in your life to be religious It's not just that you decided at some point that you wanted a a religious upbringing for your kids and so you decided, well, okay, I guess I'll become a Christian and start going to church. It's not that you turned over a new moral or ethical leaf. It's, It's not that you just decided one day to go this way instead of that way with your life. No, what it means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ is that one day you heard the gospel of Jesus and the God of the universe reached down and gave your spiritually dead heart life. He called your name in the same way he called Lazarus' name, only this time it wasn't just physical life that he gave you, it was spiritual life. It's incredible. I mean, do you, do, you, do you know how God created the entire universe? Think about it, Genesis chapter one. How did he create the entire universe? It was with his word. Let there be something out of nothing. Do you know how he created your spiritual life? With his word. Let there be something out of nothing. Friend, the, the word of God that brought you to spiritual life was so powerful that it could have created a universe. It created life in you. 
The same power that raised Jesus from the grave rescued you from darkness and death and decay and transferred you into a kingdom of light and glory and salvation. Listen to me. Never, ever, ever think of God as someone who is indifferent to you. God does not simply stand at the door of heaven and sort of fling it open and pick his teeth and sort of indifferently say, I, I'll come if you want to. Now, the God who saved you is not a God who just opens the door and says, y'all come. No, he's a God who roars off the throne of heaven to come get you by name. Your salvation was an act of massive, particular, divine power to make something out of nothing, to bring life out of death. Here's another thing about this. You don't have to be tied up in knots about telling people about Jesus. And the reason you don't have to be tied up in knots about telling people about Jesus is because this gospel that you're telling them, the, the truths that you're, that you're articulating to them are, are actually backed up and empowered by the God of the universe. That's exactly what Paul means when he says there in 16, I'm not ashamed. And Paul would stand up in the middle of, of anybody who was willing to listen, kind of whether they were willing to listen or not, and he'd just speak the gospel and his faith was not in his ability to convince anybody of anything, or to sort of massage them into the kingdom. No, he just knew that if he spoke the gospel, the Holy Spirit would do his work and cause life to come from that. Look, if you're like me, and, and you get a little bit nervous when you're kind of one-on-one -on -one pre preaching, proclaiming the gospel to somebody, sitting across a you know, coffee table from somebody or across uh, you know, on, a, on an airplane seat or whatever it is, if, if, if you're one who, who gets a little bit nervous, then, then take heart with this. It is not your job to make people believe the gospel. And there are lots of messages in this life where it is actually your job to make people believe it. I mean, if you're a salesman, right, it is your job to make me believe that this car is right for me, right? I just, we, my family just bought a car, so this is on my mind. The dude did a good job. He made me believe that that, that particular car was good for me and my family. And it was his job to, to make me believe that, right? He had, a, he had a message that was probably written for him in some talking points by, by Ford Motor Company, right? But basically that message was just a sock puppet. And he had to kind of put his own personality and his own hand in that sock puppet and sort of make it talk to me, right? But, but guys, the, the, the gospel is not a sock puppet. You don't give it its power. God gives the gospel of the, the message of the gospel its power. One missionary said one time that the gospel is like a lion. His job was just to open the cage and get out of the way and see what happens. <laughs> Look, I, I know telling people about Jesus can be scary. I, I know that. But it's also awesome to watch what happens when you just sort of flip the gospel out there and just see what happens with it. It's incredible. I, I think sometimes... Christians, the reason we get so worked up and so scared about evangelism is because we think it's our job to make them, to make people believe the gospel. We gotta get everything right. And so, and so we, we line up all of our schemes in our head and we try to, try to marshal all of our answers to the hard questions and have them ready at a, at a moment's notice. And basically we're treating the gospel like, like we're trying to sell a vacuum to them. And so we'll awkwardly sort of make some small talk with the person, you know, get to, get to know them a little bit. And then, and then at some point we make the awkward turn and say, you know, basically, I, I, I kinda, I, I'd, I'd like to sell Jesus to you. And then we try to convince them to buy. But don't treat evangelism like that. Don't think you've got to have everything marshaled up before you open your mouth about Jesus. I mean, just, just sort of 
say a prayer, trust that if you're a member of a church, if you're a, if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church, just have some faith that your church brought you in because they think you understand the gospel to some, to some degree. And if, if you're a Christian and you don't feel locked and loaded in that way, then you know, there, there's a good book called What is the Gospel? You could read that and get, get sort of ready to go with it. You don't have to understand everything, but, but just, just sort of rely on your knowledge of the gospel and launch a conversation. I get into conversations all the time when I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you just, you just sort of jump into it. You start asking a question. You, you know, I have the luxury of saying that I'm a, I'm a pastor of a Christian church right on the campus of the University of Louisville. And off we go to the races. And I don't know how they're going to react to that. I don't have the whole thing planned out like a chess computer plans out a, a chess game. I just go with it. And over and over again, I see the Lord do incredible things with it. It's, it's amazing. You, just, you see the gospel sort of wedge into a question that that person has and move the bricks before you even know what's happening. And all of a sudden, they're asking questions that they, they never thought they had, never thought they understood. And then eventually the Lord speaks their name and they, they come to life about their need of King Jesus. The gospel has massive, massive power. You can have confidence in it. Here's the second thing. Second reason that we can have confidence in the gospel is because it offers an awesome gift. We can have confidence in the gospel because it offers an awesome gift. That's the very next thing that Paul says there. The gospel is the power of God because, what, what, in other words, what makes it so powerful? It's the power of God because, because why? Well, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you were a first century Jew again, and you were reading this letter for the first time, this would be another phrase that would sort of evoke that whole day of salvation thing that we talked about earlier. The word revealed there, in fact, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the, to the Jew first and also the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That, that word revealed there is actually the word apocalypse. So when you read these phrases, that's kind of what you're thinking about. You're thinking about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the, the great day of salvation when God will bear his right arm and his power will be displayed to the world in, in salvation. That's what you're thinking about. And what you're thinking here is that what Paul is saying is that God's now character, his righteousness is gonna be revealed and, and poured out on the world, apocalypsed upon the world. Now, if you just stop right there in the reading, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, period. If you just stop right there, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. If you stop right there, it's terrifying. What Paul is saying right there is terrifying if that's all you've got. Because if God comes in the day of judgment and reveals his righteousness, the fact is not a single one of us on the face of the planet stacks up. Not a single one of us is gonna find ourselves on the right side of that equation. I mean, I mean, if God splits the sky and comes back to rescue the righteous, I'm toast because I'm not righteous. And I'm aware of the times when I've rebelled against God. I'm aware of the, the sin, some of it, that lives in my heart. And then there's other stuff that I'm not, probably not even aware of, but I know that if he's rescuing the righteous, I'm not gonna be among them. So for the righteousness of God to be revealed is a terrifying idea. And it just, in fact, seems to get reinforced in verse 18 because now it's not the righteousness of God that's being revealed. It's the wrath of God that's being revealed. 
And if you're reading over this thing too fast, what you're going to think is that, oh no, the righteousness of God is being revealed and wrath is a synonym for righteous because none of us are, are righteous. So what's happening is that God is bearing his right arm, revealing his righteousness, judging the earth in wrath, and we are all done. That's what you're thinking. But there's a clue in these verses that actually maybe something else is going on. Maybe this isn't just in the gospel, the, the, the righteous character, the wrath of God, the justice of God is being revealed. Maybe it's something slightly different. There's a clue in there that gives us an inkling of that. And that's the phrase there, from faith for faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, now that's, a, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? And what on earth does it mean? Well, there are all kinds of ideas. There are all kinds of sort of arguments for what this phrase from faith for faith means. Some people say that uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from sort of one kind of faith to another. So maybe it's, maybe it's a weak faith to a strong faith. And it's talking about Christian sanctification. And in the gospel, what happens is you start out with a weak faith and eventually you, you grow into a strong faith. And so that's what it means. You're going from little faith to big faith, but it doesn't quite work like that. Well, maybe some people have said it's a sort of Old Testament faith in the Old Covenant to a, to a New Testament faith in Jesus. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it's even a, a sort of movement from having no faith, like a, like a negative faith, an anti-faith, to having, you know, positive faith, pro-faith. Maybe that's what it is, but I think all that's too complicated. I think what you've got here in that phrase, from faith, for faith, or from faith, to faith, however you translate it, is it's just a saying that means it's entirely of faith. That's what it means. It's like from faith to the end in faith. It's from faith at the beginning to faith at the end. It's just faith from beginning to end, from top to bottom. It's faith all the way down. That's what he means. You can see this same kind of construction actually in 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul says that to those who are perishing, we Christians have the savor of death unto death. Now, what does he mean by that? We have the savor. To those who are perishing, you, you and I as Christians have the savor of, of death unto death. Well, what does he mean? He just, he just means that to, to those who are perishing, we smell like nothing but death, right? We smell like, like faith from, or, or smell like death from top to bottom, from beginning to end. That's what we smell like. But to those who are being saved, Paul says in that same place, we have the savor of life unto life. In other words, we smell like life and, and nothing else. That's what we smell like sort of to each other. That's what he's that's what he's saying there. Well, well, those phrases, the savor of death unto death, of life unto life, it's exactly the same words that you see here. So here's what he's saying. What he's saying is, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's entirely of faith. Entirely of faith. The way the righteousness of God is revealed is entirely of faith. From faith unto faith. About faith from start to finish. About faith from beginning to end. It's faith all the way down. Now that's odd, right? Because, because, because what does faith have to do with the revealing of the righteousness of God? I mean, think about it. Who is it, according to verse 16, that has faith? I mean, look at it. Who has faith? It's, it's the same word as believes there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to, to everyone who believes. That's us, right? That's, that's people. We're the ones who believe. We're the ones who have faith. And, and yet Paul is saying that somehow it's our faith, it's us believing in which the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that should clue you in that what we're talking about here is not just the revealing of the wrath of God upon the world in judgment. 
It's something more. It's something else. And the reason you think that is because, well, it doesn't require me to have faith for God to judge the world and reveal his righteous character to the world. He can do that whether I have faith or not. Now, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't involve me at all. So, so what is it that's going on here that has to do with the righteousness of God being revealed that, that, in which it happens through and by and with my faith? What's going on? What does my faith have to do with that? Well, he's going to unfold this whole thing later. But I'll take you to the end of the story now. What he's talking about is not just the wrath of God being revealed upon the world, not just the character of the righteous God being revealed upon the world. What he's talking about is a righteousness. He'll get to it and we'll get to it later this weekend. But he's talking about a righteousness that is given to believers from God. A righteous status, a righteous record that is given to believers from God. It's a gift from God. One of the most, one of the clearest places I think where you can see this is in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes, For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, and here's the key phrase for what we're talking about, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. It's something that's given. Much more will those reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now what you've got there is the white hot heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in, this, it's in this very packed tight form in Romans 1, 16 and 17. But this is what's gonna grow into the great oak of Romans through chapters one through eight and then on through the rest of the book. This is where Paul is explaining what the heart of the gospel is. The heart of the gospel is that you need to be declared righteous before the holy judge of the universe. It doesn't matter particularly who you are. What matters is that your greatest need in all the universe is to be declared righteous by the judge of all the universe. I mean, I mean, when you stand before the judgment bar of God and the Bible says that that day is coming for every single one of us, one of two things is gonna happen. A verdict is gonna be handed down on you and on the record of your life and that verdict is gonna be one of two things. It's either gonna be a declaration by the judge of all the universe that yes, you are righteous. I declare you to be so. So because you are righteous, welcome to all the, the gifts and rewards of eternity. Welcome, welcome. Come into the feast that I have prepared for you. That's one thing that could happen. That's one verdict that could be handed down on you. The other one, though, is, is condemnation. It would be the judge of the universe looking at the record of your life and saying, no, you're, you're not righteous. You're guilty of sin, of, of rebellion. You're guilty of bad motivation. You're guilty of, of not loving me as you should. You're guilty of idolatry. So, so you, you're not welcome to the gifts and rewards of, of eternity. You're to be cast out from my presence forever and ever and my wrath poured out on you righteously forever in hell. One of those two things happens to every single one of us. And the question is how, the great question of the universe and therefore of your life is how do I get the declaration of righteousness? and not of condemnation. Now for most human beings, the answer to that question is, I've gotta do more. I, I just gotta do more, right? I mean, I've got, I've got this, this record of, of, of my life over here, right? And I, I understand that, that if, you, if you write it all out, it's, just, it's full of rebellion against God and sin and idolatry and lust and, and greed and anger and all these things. I know that it's full of it. It's like red ink everywhere, right? That's my record of life. And I know when God looks at that record and decides to hand down a verdict on me, it's not gonna be righteous. He's gonna look at that and say, guilty, condemned. 
And so what most people think is that, all right, what I need to do is just get some green ink on the pen. That's good, right? Green ink. And I need to start writing good stuff on the record of life. And maybe, just maybe, God will look at the green and he'll see that the green somehow outweighs the red and he'll say that I'm righteous. But that's not going to work. I mean, why isn't that going to work? It's because the red is still there. And the problem for human beings when it comes to the judgment bar of God is not the absence of good works. It's the presence of sin. The problem is not just the absence of good works. It's the presence of sin. And if you could go from, from this day forward until the day that you die and never ever sin again, the red ink is still there. And to make matters even worse, the Bible tells us over and over that, that, that every time you stick your your pen in the, in the green ink, it turns out that the whole thing is tinged with red anyway, right? I mean, have you ever thought about what it means that Jesus was actually sinless? That he never sinned. He didn't sin in word. He didn't sin in deed. He didn't sin in, in, in anything. I, I mean, watch this. I'm going to do something here that will amaze and befuddle you. Watch this. Okay, I was looking at the clock. I think, I think, that I just went for three seconds without sinning <laughs> in word or deed or thought. I really do. Like I did my best to sort of clear out my mind. So I clearly didn't say anything, right? I clearly didn't do anything. I was standing here as nicely as I could. And I think I did a pretty good job of just watching the clock and get to the three seconds. I think I did that. But I am also... I am also very well aware that even as the, as the clock ticked down to the, to the three seconds, I started to feel a little proud of myself. <laughs> and there was, this, there was this half a second where I thought, I am going to enjoy that line that I get to say to all these people saying, I didn't sin for three seconds. I'm going to like that. And they're going to think a lot of me because of that. So, I mean, if, if sin were just a matter of words, thoughts, and deeds, because I managed to do it for three seconds, I can actually fathom a little bit what it would mean for Jesus to go 33 years without sinning in word, thought, or deed, right? I can sort of fathom that because I figure if I can do it for kind of three seconds, I figure he can sort of just multiply that by a lot and get to 33 years, pretty no problem. <laughs> but when I think that sin is not just a matter of word, thought, and deed, but it's also about my motivations and my, my loves and, and the reasons that I'm doing all of these things. It blows my mind that Jesus would be sinless. It just blows my mind. You can't just write green ink on your record. That's, that's not gonna do it because even your motivation in writing the green ink is gonna be tinged with red. Now, now what has to happen what has to happen and what Paul says does happen in the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually what Martin Luther called a great exchange that takes place between a believer and Jesus. Because see, while you've got this, this record over here that's written out in, in all this red ink, rebellion and sin and idolatry and all the rest, guess what Jesus did in all the 33 years of his life? He amassed another record over here that is all green. Not one word, not one action, not one thought, not one motivation, not one love out of place. He did everything everything right down to the last little letter of God's standards. He earned every blessing of eternity. He earned every reward of God's favor. He won it all. 
And the good news of the gospel is that when you believe in Christ, when you have faith in Jesus, what happens, Paul says, and Martin Luther described it like this, is that a great exchange happens between you and Jesus as you're united to him in faith. I mean, on the one hand, your record of unrighteousness and sin and rebellion is, is transferred to, to Jesus and he dies for it. His father looks at him on the cross and says, that record is imputed or credited to you. And I will not look at that. I will turn my back away from that. Habakkuk says that God is too pure of eye even to look upon evil. And so Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the other part of that exchange is that, is that Jesus' perfect record of righteousness and relationship with his father and, and love for his father is transferred to, to you. And God looks at that and, and when he sees you, he doesn't see your record of righteousness. It's already exhausted in Christ. It's already, it's already consumed on the cross. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He says, I declare you to be righteous. Not because of anything you have done, but solely and completely because of what Jesus did for you. That's why Martin Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness. He didn't, he didn't mean that the righteousness we have is like Klingon righteousness or Martian righteousness when he said, it's not what he meant. Alien just meant from outside of us. And what he meant by that was that, that when we hold up a record before God at the last day, it's not gonna be that, that we and Jesus sort of cooperated together to put something up before God that would just pass muster. Now when we stand before God and hold up a, a record of righteousness that will save us, it's an alien righteousness from completely outside of us. Our faith, therefore, is not in Jesus plus some cooperation from us or Jesus plus some penitent acts from us. Our salvation is through faith in Christ Alone, 100%. You gotta understand what this means. When we are united to Christ, God doesn't pass judgment on us according to our own record. He passes judgment on us according to Jesus' record and that is a life-changing truth. Some of you, dear brothers and sisters, have been struggling with nagging guilt all your Christian life. Some of you have struggled with it for years and Satan just hammers you day after day after year after year with accusation, with the thought that maybe God will not forgive because this or that took place in the past. Some of you, some of you have been struggling with that for years and fighting it for years. Use this truth as a weapon against Satan when he accuses you of sin and says God will not forgive. Don't try to get in Satan's face and say, no Satan, it wasn't that bad. There were mitigating circumstances. There were things that, 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 that caused that to happen. It wasn't that bad. Don't try to argue with him like that. When Satan accuses you of sin, just look at him and agree with him entirely that you are guilty. Agree with him entirely that you're guilty, but then remind him that you are united to Christ and God himself has declared you not guilty. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Here's the last thing, doesn't, doesn't take long. Number three, have confidence in the gospel because its invitation is wide open. 
Have confidence in the gospel because its invitation is wide open. Twice in these verses here, Paul talks about how a person gets all these great gifts of salvation, to be declared righteous before God, to be, to be invited into all the blessings and rewards of eternity. He tells twice how a person gets all of that, and it is through faith. So in verse 17, he says that, that strange phrase, from faith unto faith. In other words, it's the righteousness of God, this gift of righteousness is revealed to us by faith from beginning to end. That's how it happens. In 16, he says, same word, it's for everyone who believes. Now, now what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about it more tomorrow when we look at Romans chapter 4. But essentially, if you want a one-word definition of the word faith, it means to rely. It means to, to trust in Jesus. It means to embrace Jesus as your only hope and recognize that what you need is not for him to cooperate with you to fix up your record of life, but you actually need him to swap with you and stand in your place. At the end of this whole thing, Paul quotes Habakkuk the prophet there. You see that? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, sometimes Christians get confused about that because we think this sort of inexplicably, Paul has all of a sudden turned to talking about the Christian life. And so we read that as him saying, the righteous people are gonna walk faithfully day by day. That's, that's how we kind of read it. The righteous will live by faith. And so we think that he's talking about the Christian life and, and we think that's what he's saying. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying and what Habakkuk the prophet was saying is that, is that the category of those people who finally end up being the righteous, that is those declared righteous by God, you'll be able to look at that category of the righteous and say that the reason they're living, the reason that they've been declared righteous and given eternal life is through faith in Jesus. That's what he means. The righteous, those who are in that category and declared righteous by God, will live, they'll, they'll find life, they'll be given eternal life by faith. That's how it happens. If you want to find life, if you want to be among those who are declared righteous by God, it happens through faith, by trusting in Jesus. You, you can see what's going on here. I mean, even in the phrase here in verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What he's doing is, is throwing the doors here wide open. He's saying that this power of the gospel that brings salvation is available to everybody, Jew and Greek, and in the Jewish mind, that's everybody in the world. I mean, listen to me. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most universal invitation in the history of the world. It invites everyone who lives to believe in Christ. But what you've got to understand about it is that it is an invitation. And an invitation requires acceptance. Do you ever think about that? Sometimes Christianity gets nailed for saying that you have to accept the invitation to believe in Jesus. People will say, it's, it's exclusive. You know, if, if God was really loving, he, he wouldn't make you believe in Jesus. You could just believe in whatever you want to believe in and that would, that would be okay. And so Christianity gets dinged for saying you have to accept the invitation. One of my, one of my favorite days in Louisville is free coffee day at Starbucks. Do you guys have that here in Albuquerque? I love it. Because you get to go in and stand in line for like 35 minutes and get a free like buck 50 worth of coffee. <laughs> it's incredible. I love it. And, and the thing about Starbucks free coffee day is that it is an invitation not just to gold card members, which I proudly am, <laughs> nor merely to green card members, which some of you poor saps still are. But it is a universal invitation to the entire city of Louisville. If you will come to Starbucks, we will give you free coffee. Universal invitation and everybody loves it. And guess what? 
Nobody, nobody, nobody stands around grousing that Starbucks won't send a delivery guy to their house with a cup of coffee. Nobody stands around grousing that Starbucks won't allow you to go to Pizza Hut for your free coffee. Yes, it's, an, it's a universal invitation. Come get this free coffee, but you gotta come get the coffee. Same thing with Jesus. Come, all you who are thirsty, drink of this water. Take my yoke upon you and you'll find it light and you'll have rest for your soul, but you've got to come. You can't go to the Buddha or to Muhammad to find this salvation. You come to the king and you find his hand wide open and you take mercy from his royal hand and you're saved. This gospel has massive, massive power. Don't be ashamed of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news that even though we're rebels against you, Jesus willingly came and lived the life that we should have lived and died to the death that we deserved and rose again. So that if we'll take him by the hand, by faith, if we'll be united to him, just as he was raised from the dead, so we too will be raised to newness of life and ultimately in the resurrection to life eternal. Our Father, we pray that you would drive these truths deep in our hearts and help us never, ever to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.